Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience today for taking time to be with us. Uh, our mission, as always, is to provide uh, information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. And also, Happy New Year, folks, and thank you for you know, as we go into our second full year of broadcasting, uh, thank you very much for your support. Um, we have, um, with the FCC, a, a, a government body that has a lot of influence on broadband issues that are important to uh, lots of us, people as, as in, in consumer and consumer mode, people who are, you know, part of community efforts to uh, bring broadband to their communities, uh, those of us who are in the industry as, as service providers, consultants, so forth and so on, a lot of what happens in broadband is influenced by activities that the, uh, the, the FCC takes uh, in Washington. And I think it's very important that we have a better handle on that, but there's also a lot of complexity. And, and trying to understand, you know, number one, what the FCC even does can seem a little bit daunting. And I think it's important to get a little bit of a handle on uh, the process and how we can tackle it so that we can influence outcomes from uh, the FCC that continue to address uh, broadband uh, deployment and broadband adoption in the U.S. Uh, today, I'm very happy to have um, a former FCC Bureau Chief, uh, Sharon Gillette, join us who uh, knows uh, a great deal about the FCC and, and process and procedure. And while she was at the FCC, uh, Sharon was involved with uh, reforming a number of key aspects of FCC programs, including uh, Universal Service Fund uh, reform, which I will definitely say was no easy feat. So I figure she's a great person to, to come on the show and talk about how consumers, how communities, how small various size providers can influence FCC policy and programs. So, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Craig. It's great to be here. So, um, God, there's so much to, to, to cover. I think probably uh, first off, uh, for, for folks who may not be very familiar with the FCC, what are some of the specific aspects or specific programs that um, – the uh, FCC is involved with that has a uh, direct impact on, on, on broadband that we're receiving in, in the U.S.? Oh, wow, that's a big question, Craig, because just about everything the FCC is doing these days has something to do with broadband one way or the other. But uh, I did give some thought to which ones are most, uh, you know, most relevant to folks in, uh, in community broadband efforts, and uh, I settled on three. Um, the first one I would describe is uh, the FCC has called broadband acceleration, meaning how do we accelerate the deployment, availability, speed of broadband uh, all over the country. And uh, the FCC has focused on uh, that as a physical infrastructure question. In other words, this, this, this particular proceeding is really focusing on um, the, the very bottommost layer, if you will, of, uh, of what it takes to build networks. And um, we started by, uh, in 2010, we re reformed the rules for uh, how to do, um, who's allowed and how long it takes and so on to attach 
uh, broadband infrastructure to utility poles, and um, that uh, that uh, proceeding happened. And um, I, I, you know, to the extent it's still in court, I'm not worried. Uh, so I think that actually made a big dent already. Uh, the proceeding that's still open and was one that was opened uh, through a notice of inquiry. And if 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 Greg would like me to, I'm happy to talk more about procedurally what that means and the process and so on. Uh, but it was uh, focusing specifically on the rights of way, access to rights of way, and uh, tower siting issues. And it was done jointly between the Wireline Bureau, which I headed, and also the Wireless Bureau, which I worked very closely with during my time at the FCC, because, as you know, broadband cuts across both. Uh, it's not confined to one bureau or the other. Um, so uh, that proceeding is uh, state remains open. They're soliciting comment. You can comment at any time and give them your thoughts on best practices for uh, managing rights of way um, to foster broadband deployment and uh, yeah, you know tower side and the right the best ways to balance the needs of communities and uh, uh, in both in both you know keeping their community um, uh, if you will uh, aesthetically pleasant but also in ensuring that there's good wireless coverage for the citizens which is increasingly a big uh, a big concern for communities uh, in, in particular that proceeding has looked a lot at, uh, a trend in the industry towards smaller cells uh, so that's one where comments are welcome at any time. A second proceeding is a relatively, well, sort of new and sort of, uh, you know, as old as the Hills um, topic, which is um, the technology transition, uh, or uh, some would call it the transition of our nation's communications infrastructure, which is what the FCC has been calling it. Uh, that was occasioned by a couple of petitions filed at the FCC um, in November by AT&T and uh, later in the month by uh, by the uh, and, and TCA, which represents rural telephone companies. And uh, they both filed saying, hey, you know what, a lot of your rules, FCC, uh, are really assuming a copper-based telephone, you know, landline telephone network, and increasingly that's not really the world anymore. Um, and so a lot of things need to be transitioned into the new world, and um, it, really you should look at that. So what the FCC has done is convened a task force and also put out those petitions for public comment. Um, one of the things that helps people to comment at the FCC is to know the docket number, which in this case is GN for general, meaning it involves many bureaus, uh, 12-353, and the first round of comments is due on January 28th. Um, you might be asking yourself, well, why do I care? Um, I think that, you know, big, big, big picture, there are two really big issues that uh, this proceeding implicates. And one of them is how are we going to ensure that everybody in the country has the ability to access communication networks? Um, all understand those technologies are changing. Lots of people have abandoned their landlines, have gone either wireless or have uh, are using VoIP phones. Uh, nevertheless, I think our nation has a very strong commitment to universal service, and transitioning that regime along with the technology is very important so that people don't lose service. The second piece that that transition really implicates is the future of how competition is going to happen in the country. Um, those of you who follow this stuff will remember um, 1996 as a watershed year when Congress, for the first time since 1934, did a landmark overhaul of the Telecommunications um, the, the Communications Act, the, the governing statute for the FCC. And um, I, I, they put in place a, a um, a framework to allow uh, competition in provision of local service, and um, the world has changed a lot since 1996, uh, but um, 
the especially for small and medium enterprises and for towns and for state governments uh, the ability to have access to competitive services is really really important to having uh you know more service options and lower prices and so uh the future of how competition will be assured in the new world is is extremely important um especially to anybody who runs a business or buys you know buys enterprise services so those are two. Um, this third is a really, 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 really big proceeding. <laughs> so before I go into it, it's USF, of course, Craig. Before I go into it, right, did right. you want to ask any other questions? So, well, yeah, let, let's um, let's step back a second. So the FCC is developing rules. So we'll say they're developing rules for right-of-way, and right-of-way affects the, the build-out, and it truly does touch us all in the neighborhood, even though most people probably are unaware of it. Um, and then, then the issue of competition is actually a, a fairly serious one because I think m- most folks, even if they're not, you know, as followers of, you know, broadband technology developed, understand the pocketbook issue of, you know, if you have one provider, one carrier, your prices are going to be higher than if you had 10. So I think, right. I think people can kind of grasp that. But if I ask the look at it from the perspective of, okay, how does this process work of the um, FCC making rules? Like you've described, you know, there, there's a proceeding. Um, so maybe if people sort of understood, well, what is a proceeding? And then maybe with a little bit, you know, as part of that answer, you know, how is it that, you know, the average community or maybe a community leader or a city council or whatever, you know, how can they influence that proceeding? Right, that's a great. It's a great question, and uh, you know, so a a review of FCC Process 101, I think, would be very, very helpful. Uh, There are a couple things that FCC will typically. Sometimes they do things on their own motion. Sometimes they do them because parties petition and ask them to. But there always has to be something that starts off a process. Um, You can sort of think of the FCC. It's an administrative agency, so it runs under a piece of statute called the Administrative Procedures Act. But for lay people. The, the most familiar thing is sort of Perry Mason. You know, it's like a court. Mm-hmm. It has procedures like a court to ensure that everybody gets due process as as um, as uh, new programs are developed. It, it, it's um, you mentioned rules. Uh, when I first got into the regulatory world, I found that very confusing. So let me pause there for a minute and just talk about what rules are. So uh, what the FCC does, whether it gives away money or whether it mandates that one carrier, uh, you know, allow other carriers to roam on its network, the way it does that is by interpreting the statute. And it interprets the statute by uh, writing more detailed language, which are called rules. And they, you know, Congress writes a broad goal down, you know, everybody in the country should have universal service. Uh, They did that in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and they wrote down about two or three pages worth of of statutory language, basically expressing the goals of what they were trying to accomplish. The FCC then had to create programs that decided where the money would come from and where the money would go to. Those details are called rules. And so they're they're like a more detailed uh, version of the statute, if we will, that fleshes out congressional intent. Um, the rule. So to to get to those rules, there is a process, and that's what the Administrative Procedure Act governs. So the first step in the process has to be giving notice of what you think the rules will be. So proposing a set of rules, uh, what uh, what what problem they're solving, and how you propose to solve them. So um, that typically the first step will be a notice of proposed 
rulemaking. So it's NPRM, and um, mm-hmm. it uh, it ideally proposes a set of rules. There should be an appendix at the end that says, you know, here's what we propose the rules would look like that govern whatever it is the FCC is trying to govern. There are alternative ways of doing it, but the NPRM is necessary a necessary step. There have to be proposed rules in order to get to an order, which is where the final rules get adopted. Um, there are the other ways, other things that can happen that give notice at the FCC are uh, simple documents called public notices. Typically, that's for things like, you know, here's the comment deadlines. They've been established. Here's a public notice explaining that. Sometimes the FCC will also do something called a notice of inquiry, which is typically where they're not completely convinced that there is a problem and that they have a proposal to solve it. It's more like, is there a problem? Or tell us more about this landscape. And that, for example, is the broadband acceleration was kicked off with a notice of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Whichever of those it is, they, the first step is a proposal. Uh, and then uh, there's typically a public comment period set. Um, and it can vary, you know, depending on the urgency and the complexity of the proceeding. It could be a month in really short cases, three months in longer cases is more typical. Then there's a period where parties are able to comment on each other's comments. So after the comments are filed, there's another period for replies to comments. So if somebody says, you know, um, gee, this town did something really stupid, um, the town can come back and say, no, we didn't. They're wrong. <laughs> Of course, it would be rare for somebody to say, you know, this community did something really smart, but if they did, you could write back and say thank you. (laughs) Uh, But in any case, it's an opportunity to reply, yes. Now, what confuses people a lot is that they think that once the reply comment is deadline, it's over. That's it. And um, that is often the case in state proceedings, but it's not the case at the FCC. In, In fact, at the FCC, when the reply comments come in, that's almost in some sense the beginning of the process. Because people are actually allowed to comment at any time, uh, with one small exception, which I'll get to later. But basically, people can file a comment at any time that they wish. They can come visit the FCC any time they wish. They can make phone calls to the FCC any time that they wish and press their case. The only thing is that if it's a rulemaking of general applicability, um, meaning not an adjudicatory case where one party is suing another, but you know, a general set of rules that's going to apply to everybody, the due process concern is that everybody should be able to see what everybody else in the docket is saying. And that is um, the motivation for what are called the ex parte rules. Ex parte meaning I'm one party making a comment, but the other parties are not in the room. And so we have to have a process by which when I make a comment, everybody else knows what I've said. When someone else makes a comment, I have the ability to see what they've said. And that's why the FCC requires the filing of a document which summarizes the conversation um, within, I believe, it's two days of, of the actual conversation. Um, so uh, people don't realize, but they can actually keep commenting at any time. The next step after all the comments are received and the SEC has gone through them and then the staff figures out, you know, what are we going to do, and they put a proposal before the commissioners, there are two ways they can put the proposal, uh, put the, uh, in other words, a proposal for what the final rules should be. There are two ways they can put that before the commission. They can, uh, if the commission decides that this issue is such a big one that they want, um, you know, the whole world to see, to watch the deliberations and to, uh, and to get a lot of, uh, press attention to it, they will typically put it on the agenda of their monthly meeting. What people don't realize often is that the monthly meetings uh, probably handle one one hundredth of the FCC's business. <laughs> 
tons okay. and tons of stuff gets done outside of the open meetings. Most and there's there's a lot of routine things, but there's also just other things that just aren't uh, you know um, uh, don't lend themselves well to big statements and uh, big press uh, things. They get done on what is called circulation, and what that means is that uh, the staff prepares an order. An order is the final rules and the explanation for them circulates that order to the other four commissioners. The staff at the FCC all report to the chairman. The chairman's office then circulates their uh their um proposal to the um to the other commissioners and their um while an order is on circulation, uh people can still come in and press their cases, they can still have phone calls, meetings, uh written comments uh with with the commissioners offices with the staff. The only exception, as I mentioned earlier, there's one gotcha. When an item is on the meeting agenda, in order to allow the staff and the commissioner's offices time to actually process and discuss and um, and actually get the final orders ready, the last week before a meeting is is typically uh, it's 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 funny. It's actually a blackout period. People are not allowed to come in from the outside to press their case unless the FCC invites them in, which occasionally happens, but not very often. Uh, but the um, the uh, for for reasons that uh, you know only a lawyer could love, this period is called the sunshine period. <laughs> so people at the FCC will say, you know, when sunshine drops, blah 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 blah. And I said this to somebody once. He said, "Sunshine drops, the sun is setting. What are you talking about?" <laughs> and I said, "Oh, well, that's FCC jargon for it's a quiet period, and uh, people from the outside are supposed to leave us alone and get our work done for a week." Um, as you can imagine, when there are controversial items before the commissioners, the two weeks before that, the, the items go to the other commissioners three weeks before the meeting. The next two weeks are basically continuous meetings, um, and uh, so you really need that week of quiet to actually, uh, you know, digest what you've heard and, and get the final order ready. So that's the one exception. But like I said, most things are done on circulation during which there is no sunshine period, and uh, and um, parties are free to keep making their case as long as as long as they wish. Does that help? Okay. Yes. So now let's. Um, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna interrupt this, this process as you're laying it out, but um, I think the first question that comes to mind uh, is, uh, you know, you have the public comment period, and everyone understands that that's the process which is, you know, more or less egalitarian. That anybody mm-hmm. who has a comment can put in. Anyone who has an idea that, uh, you know. It, seems viable, they can put it in. But isn't mm-hmm. the reality that there's um though everyone can participate equally, it's not as if everyone has equal influence. I mean, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with Blair Levin about this at one point, you know, and he said, Well it, it's great that one person has a good idea, but you have to get people to buy into that idea. You need to get other maybe elected officials to buy into the idea. In other words, you, you have to have some math around your great idea in order for it to, I don't know, have weight or bubble to the top amongst all the other comments that might be there. Is that true? And um, and then how do you deal with that or how do you address that as a, a community or a, as a group of individuals? 
Well, I think it's a great point. I mean, to a certain extent, Washington's an echo chamber, right? So, um, right. so the more people are saying the same thing, the more it gets heard. Um, and so Blair's point is, you know, if you have a particular uh, position and it turns out that you have allies in that position, if you all say the same thing together, you will be heard more than, you know, if there's 10 of you, it will be 100 times louder, not 10 times louder uh, with what you're saying. Um, but that doesn't mean that individuals can't make a difference, and, and they can, and I will, uh, you know, uh, I would uh, point, for example, to, um, you know, certain states, for example, our routine filers at the FCC uh, frequently file um, public interest comments. Um, I, 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 there's also, you know, it, it's totally understood that, uh, look, some of the industry folks, they have huge lobbying departments, and they have people whose job it is just to watch the FCC and, uh, you know, into schedule meetings, and they're in Washington, so it's easier, and so on. That, that's all understood. That doesn't mean that the public interest point of view and the point of view of, of non-traditional uh, stakeholders, if you will, is not important. And it is extremely important to the FCC. And uh, you know, a regulator's job is to find balance. And uh, we used to uh, always joke when I was in in the regulatory job, both at the state and at the federal, that you knew you had found the right solution when everybody was a little bit mad at you, everybody was upset about something, but also everybody found something to like in what you had done. So nobody got everything that they want. That's typically the outcome that uh, that a regulatory agency is striving for is one that meets that balance. And in order to do that, all the voices have to be heard. And what I um, what I um, what I would strongly urge your listeners is that uh, even if you're small, even if you can only make one comment or if you can only make one point, that's fine. It's really really important. Because the FCC, at the end of the day, anything they do that's important, it's going to go to court. Somebody's going to sue them. And when the the um, when the judge looks at their order, what the judges are going to be evaluating is the record of the proceeding. And this was also an unfamiliar concept to me as, as someone who's not a lawyer when I when I got into uh, regulatory agencies. You know, most of us think, well, if it's out there on the internet, it's a known fact, right? But it, no, that's not how legal proceedings work. They base their decisions on the information in the record. So even if it's a known fact that, you know, uh, that, you know, there's so many wisps in the country, if that's not in the record, it's difficult to, uh, to, to use. It's not impossible, but the FCC has to put it in the record itself and so on. So if there's a party that has a point of view and wants to be recognized and wants to be advocated, they've got to put that in the, uh, into the record of the proceeding. And it's very helpful. I know we many times would want to be able to incorporate a range of views and we would look at the record, it would be very skewed. Um, so it, it doesn't matter how small, how short, uh, what matters is that you speak. Um, and uh, we definitely found public interest comments to be extremely helpful in, uh, in, in helping to find that balance. That said, Craig, there are better and worse ways to advocate. And if it would be helpful, I'd be happy to talk more about ways that um, uh, people with smaller uh, advocacy budgets, if you will, can uh, can use them most effectively. Let's do that. Let's talk about that because that's clearly going to be, okay. I think, where a lot of my, my listeners are going to really care about. Right, right. So I would say a, a, a two or three, you know, sort of key points here. One is, uh, you know, have, if you're going to have a meeting, whether it's by phone, phone is fine. You don't have to come in in person. Um, but uh, do do your homework first. Every bureau has, every bureau chief has one or two legal advisors. Every commissioner's office has a legal advisor for uh, the particular issue. So, in, uh, for example, each each commissioner has a wireline legal advisor. They typically also cover some of the other bureaus as well. 
but uh, there's a separate one for wireline and for wireless. So uh, depending on what your issue is, you want to make contact with the legal advisor for either the bureau or the commissioner's office that you're going that you want to speak with, and talk to them in advance and explain to them what it is you're interested in advocating, and they will help you figure out a couple of things. First of all, what's the best timing? The best time to come in is either before the proceeding is really gelled, you know, at the very early part of the um, either right before the right uh, right after all the comments have come in, so everybody's sort of digesting them and figuring out what to do. Yeah. Sharon, let me interrupt you for one sec. There's a call come in. I want to catch it before we lose it. Uh, but hold okay. that thought. Let's pick this up after I figure out who's here. Okay. Hello, this is Hi, Craig. Chuck Sherwood here. Hi, Sharon. How Chuck, are you doing? how are you? Hi, Chuck. How are you? Wonderful. Uh, I've been listening, and I was very curious. You had mentioned the various ways to get the FCC to act. As you probably know, the Alliance for Community Media submitted a petition at the recommendation uh, of an FCC staffer at a congressional hearing regarding uh, AT&T's PEG access solution. Uh, And it's been probably going on now nearly three years, and what happens when these petitions hit the FCC and fall into a black hole? Yeah, um, well, the particular petition you're talking about is not one familiar to me because although I did cable when I was in Massachusetts, cable uh, programming PEG issues fall under the Media Bureau, which was unfortunately not not my area of expertise at the FCC. So that particular petition I couldn't speak to, Chuck. But um, as you know, the FCC has, uh, well, Maybe you don't know. The FCC has about maybe 15 times the workload that it has the staff to handle. So it's always a matter of triage and prioritization. Um, and that actually was my next point. So you, you gave me a great segue here, Chuck. Thank you. Um, oh, which but is that, the, yeah. The, the thing is, is that um, when we submitted the petition, uh, we got nods from quite a few of the commissioners that they were interested in moving on this. What happens right. when it falls into the politics of the chairman not being interested in something that the other commissioners are interested in? Right. Well, I can guess. Uh, I can, how many years ago are we talking about, Chuck? Uh, I think we're coming on to three years. Three years, yeah. Um, so the chairman does control the agenda, and the staff work for him. So you know, to the or, or for her. So so to the extent that the um, uh, you know there's more to do than can possibly be done, and things don't get acted on, that's a that's a, a reflection typically of the chairman's prioritization. The um, what I was going to say though is what are the things that influence the chairman's prioritization? Uh, aside from you know big stakeholders, is obviously Congress, and so uh, for everybody, I would say that to the extent you have a Congress, your your congressional delegation, uh, and in particular the FCC, of course, listens to their committee of oversight, which is the Commerce Committee. So to the extent right. somebody well, from it, your delegation is on the Commerce Committee, that's your best bet. Recommendation from the FCC staffer was in fact at a House Commerce Committee hearing regarding mm-hmm. uh, peg access issues and mm-hmm. the way that 
uh, peg access channels were being discriminated against by AT&T, which did not allocate full channel capacity. Uh, And parallel, of course, there's the Community uh, Access Preservation Act, uh, the CAP Act, which uh, had been working its way through uh, the House over the last session and will be coming back again. So, uh, you know, it, it, it just to remind folks that it's not always quite as easy to get the commission to act when there are political forces up against you uh, as you've been kind of making it sound. <laughs> Chuck, you're talking about initiating a new proceeding? And I and I agree that that's a very well, very I, very I, high I, hurdle once, at the FCC under any chair, circumstance. Yeah, once the chair yeah, leaves, <laughs> I'm sure but I, will resubmit the petition. Right. What, what I was gonna. What I actually wasn't really speaking about. Oh, getting the FCC to do a new proceeding because that's actually a huge hurdle. I mean, that's really a big deal. Um, and um, what I, when I'm talking about filing comments and so forth, I'm talking about for proceedings that are already open and where the FCC has oh, already absolutely. asked a set of questions, yeah. uh, and getting your voice heard on those on those issues. Sure. Um, so well, I agree with you that the hurdle is very high for new proceedings. Um, well, they don't of happen course, that often. The the, uh, the AT&T uh, petition to go ahead and have. Uh, you know, telecommunications reclassified from Title II to Title One gives us the uh, appropriate opportunity to raise those comments because there are issues about uh, that reclassification and what and will and will not be able to occur uh, regulatory-wise and technology-wise if the right. commission goes ahead and moves on that. Right, and Chuck, I'm so glad you said that because that this is exactly my point, is now is the time. We can't, you know, oh. and and, uh, <laughs> and fully identifying the issues that are involved in the transition I think is extremely important to do right now and not well, find they, out later, oh, they, my, we didn't realize that was implicated, you know. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> so uh, they now is the time to make your voice heard. Over the mm-hmm. last Three years about what happens when you uh, put uh, video channel capacity into a so-called IP infrastructure uh, will, of course, raise its ugly head uh, when you look at things like VoIP. Uh, and uh, so it, it, it will be very interesting. Well, it's great chatting with you as always, Sharon. A pleasure, Chuck. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days. Um, Craig, I thought I heard a second question come in. Was there a second one? No, 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 no. I I think I'm the only caller. Okay. Okay. All right, good. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Um, Should I continue? Yeah, just pick up where we, we okay. where we were. Where we left off, right. Okay. Right. The other thing I was just going to say is that uh, I think also when you speak with folks at the FCC or even in your comments, be sure you have a clear message and a clear ask, if you will. People call it the ask. What's your ask? <laughs> you know, it's what is right, it you want right. them to do? <laughs> um, and a lot of people, the make, mistake they make is to come in and say, well, we don't like, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Uh, we don't like that. 
okay, great, we get it that you don't like it. What do you want us to do instead? So having a clear ask as to what, uh, you know, what it is you think the FCC should do um, is, uh, you know, and if the answer is the FCC should do nothing and should just reject that, that's fine. But a lot of times the reason the FCC is considering it at all is there's some kind of problem. So uh, it's even better if you can help them come up with a solution. Um, and the third thing I would say, and this I think is the really, really, really hardest part, um, is is um, to make sure that what you want the FCC to do is consistent with their governing statute, uh, which is, you know, um, 47 U.S.C., the, the uh, Communications Act. Um, the challenge I often found, you know, uh, we I was mentioning that uh, the Connect America Fund or the USF is a big uh, proceeding at the FCC. Um, from outside the FCC looking in before I got there, I thought, oh, why does the FCC keep wanting to give money to ILEX? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Broadband is way beyond ILEX. Well, the answer is the statute requires that high-cost funding go to uh, eligible telecommunications carriers. And at this juncture, most of the carriers that have become ETCs, they're either ILEX or they're wireless carriers. Uh, ILEX, okay. meaning incumbent, local exchange, big telephone companies. Um, and uh, th that turns out to be a statutory, um, uh, you know, framework issue. Um, it is not true uh, in the healthcare and e-rate portions of the Universal Service Program, and that's one where there's a lot more provider diversity. Uh, but it is the case in the lifeline and high-cost pieces of the fund. So it is, there is a constraint that people operate under, and um, much as many people at the understand people people at the FCC may conceive of policy in a perfect world differently. They don't live in a perfect world. They live in a statutorily constrained world. And so, uh, you know, to be aware of those constraints, um, uh, it makes your advocacy just that more, that much more effective. Um, okay. And, and uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. That actually brings up, uh, you know, we talked a little bit right before the show started, you know, the, the discussion I had with Chairman Janikowski on Monday, which I've actually written up on my uh, blog, uh, for listeners who haven't uh, haven't seen that yet. So, so basically, number one, I only had two minutes, so this was a very brief interview. Let me tell you, as, as journalism goes, but, uh, but but the question I presented was was one that was brought up by um, with a number of times. I mean, I've had several whispers on, on the show and. You know, I, I talk to them. I've been at their events, and and you know, one of their issues is, you know, they feel left out of the um, a number of these programs, particularly the, the Connect America Fund, you know, which which was before the Universal Service Fund, and the the response I got um, uh, both from the chairman and I also talked to a couple of staffers from the FCC later that day. Um, you know that the the congressional constraints or the statutory constraints are are not minor in some cases because in essence that's the sort of like this foundation that you have to play with or that the FCC has to play with and whereas sometimes a lot of the uh, ideas that may be coming forward, especially as it pertains to broadband, deal with a very different reality than what Congress mandated because Congress moves as Congress moves. Well, and it was 15, it was 16 years ago, or seven, almost 17 years ago now. So it's actually February '96. Right. So it's almost seven years ago, 17 years ago. A lot has changed in 17 years, you know. Right. So. Exactly. So, so, so there has to be some. I don't know. It seems like what you're saying is there has to be some recognition of this, these constraints and this political reality, 
as you go crusading off to um, try to get stuff done or try to influence stuff that's being done at the FCC is understanding that statutory limitation. Right. I think I think it's helpful, but I would I wouldn't also I, I think it's helpful. I also wouldn't want to you know um, uh, tamp things down too much because I think uh, you know hearing what people think the right policy is sometimes can be very helpful and people can think creatively about the statute. I mean, one thing I really learned from hanging around lawyers for five years straight was uh, you know the law isn't black and white. It's subject to interpretation and it's subject to the case that people can make for how one should interpret it. So uh, just as an example, um, while the high cost portion of your USF, what's now known as the CAF or Connect America Fund. Uh, while that portion of USF, uh, you know, that has been, um, uh, you know, interpreted as being um, uh, only available to companies that have gone through the process of being designated as an eligible telecommunications carrier, uh, you know, we um, changed the way that uh, we thought about the definition of voice service um, in in the Connect America Fund order and essentially extended it so that uh, a company that's providing telecommunications, whatever that is, even if that's just a wholesale point-to-point circuit, doesn't have to be phone service. But if they're providing any form of telecommunications, then uh, they would satisfy, they, they could apply for ETC status and they would satisfy the USF part of the, of the, um, uh, of the requirements by providing voice service that no longer had to be essentially PSDN voice service. It could be VoIP. It could be other things. So uh, that was intended to help uh, companies that were not traditional wireline carriers to, uh, if they wish to go through the process, to become eligible telecommunications carriers. And I am understanding that a number of WISPs, for example, have gone out and uh, and uh, started offering over-the-top VoIP services. And uh, I would... Uh, um, you know, uh, so it's it, it's not impossible to surmount some of these obstacles. That said, um, you know, uh, some folks will come in and advocate and say, "Oh, but you make it so hard. You make us do these ETC designations and so on." I, you know, <laughs> can't help that. <laughs> when public money is being given away, there are obligations that go with it, and that's just a recognition that people have to have going in to be effective in this process. Uh, you know, you have to recognize it is public money. It does come with process. It does come with obligations. And uh, advocating for there to be uh, free money with no obligations is completely unrealistic and will not get you very far. <laughs> right. But it is possible. It uh, My point is it is possible for the FCC to be flexible when they can be if the ask is realistic. So. Um. Right. Now, uh, this might be a good time to bring up a, uh, I don't know if it's rumored or it's actually locked in, but, you know, the AT&T is running around from state to state trying to, in essence, undo all of its uh, requirements that they deliver universal service. And I might think, I'm pretty sure that there is a move afoot by them or their allies or whatever to do something similar within the FCC. And so right. That, that's the technology transition that I was talking about. The technological transition petition. That's what you're. Which uh, yes. What what uh, it's not just AT and T. It's other companies as well have been arguing for an update of the state regulations that are called carrier of last resort, 
or uh, Kohler uh, obligations, meaning the obligation to serve. So, for example, an area where that might need updating is uh, suppose a uh, a new development is is built and a and a, a cable company comes in and does triple play in that uh, in that development. Does the incumbent local exchange carrier still have to provide service in that community? Um, you know, it, it may or may not make sense. Um, so that that's an example where an update could be warranted. There's other examples where uh, there's grave cause for concern. For example, suppose there's a rural area, uh, and um, you know, uh, the the uh, in theory at least there's wireless service available. There may be wireless service available. It may not reach everybody properly, uh, and the state typically doesn't have jurisdiction over the quality of that service. So who's really ensuring? You know, who, who's the cop on the beat ensuring that everybody gets service? So those are issues that the states are having to hash out, um, and uh, different states obviously have taken different roads uh, on, the, on those kinds of issues. Uh, that is exactly the kinds of questions that are teed up in that technological transitions um, docket that I mentioned, uh, GN12353. Um, so, though, you know, to the extent communities are very concerned that uh, people uh, in their communities will not have access to network and to the extent they're concerned that businesses in their communities will not have access to competition, it's really important for them to weigh in and say that at the FCC in this docket. And so now and this probably is a good example of, you know, the situation where, you know, if I'm a small town in Iowa or a mid-sized town or city in Minnesota, you know, I'm looking at this thing getting ready to unfold in Washington. So first order of business, Washington is like 2,000, 3,000 miles away. Second thing is these are, you know, easy in concept, but they're definitely are going to take a certain amount of work to, you know, get your thoughts together if you're going to kind of file uh, comments collectively and all of that kind of stuff, and you got to orchestrate it and so forth. But it's basically we're looking at, um, you know, a lot of work, a lot of effort. Geography does not work for you, and, and AT&T has, you know, more money than anybody probably short of Bill Gates. And so how do they, I mean, how do they, I don't know, gather a heart and, or, or inspiration to, to go fight that battle? Because it seems like, even though the system, and I'm maybe reiterating what we talked about earlier, but even the system is, uh, you know, allowing us all to have a voice, there's just this feeling that, you know, you're just going to get boxed out of this this process. And and this is one of those things. I mean, even though the other issues are important to broadband, like right-of-way issues and all of that, this is kind of critical. I mean, this isn't, this isn't minor, uh, you know, what will happen if all of a sudden they just don't have the obligation to deliver telecom services everywhere. How do, how do you tell people to advise people to, I don't know, <laughs> broaden their shoulders and get ready for a, a, a an exercise like this? Right. No, I, I hear you. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, you feel a little bit like an amateur in the world of the professionals. I, I, I hear you. I understood yeah. that often in the, in the, in the, in the state, you know, as a state commissioner, we often felt that way as well. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I guess I would respond with a couple of, a couple of things. First of all, that's why trade associations were invented, so that every community doesn't do it themselves. So to the extent that the communities are, um, uh, you know, are organized into national associations, they're a much more logical place to write comments 
than uh, than than each city and town. Um, it, to the extent there's a uh, you know uh, any community broadband groups or whatever, I mean it just uh, it band together. Um, you know it is possible to uh, you know to hire outsiders to write comments for you and so on. I, I have myself as a two year ban on submitting comments at the FCC, so <laughs> I'm not writing them. But <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, uh, you know but that um, there there are many people who do this kind of thing and there are many former state commission staff who do this kind of thing too and they they are very familiar with the process um the the second thing is that um the uh if you don't do it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy it's easy to say right. oh if we comment you know no one will listen to us blah blah, blah. if you don't comment you will not get listened to <laughs> your voice will not right. be heard and nobody else will say what you were going to say and the truth is you know, it's not necessary that the comments be, you know, a perfect legal format and all that. That that isn't the point. The point is they have to be coherent. They have to make a realistic point, uh, and they have to, uh, uh, you know, they have to be expressed clearly, and uh, and they can be very short. You know, they can simply say this is the main thing, but they need to be to the point and uh, on point and um, and addressing a real issue that the FCC has teed up in the proceeding that they're dealing with. Um, so it, that's the homework. I mean, I know it's not easy, but uh, as I say, that is why associations exist, and a lot of times it's the value that they can bring to this is that they can pay more attention. And, you know, I know, no, you know, look, to some extent, these things are David versus Goliath. But if David hadn't gotten into the fight, you know, where would we be today? Right. So um, it, it just, you know, just just ducking out, ducking out of the fight entirely obviously doesn't get uh, doesn't get you anywhere. So mm-hmm. fair enough. Fair enough. So now let's. Um, so, so there's that particular battle. So let's come back to the to the reform stuff that you worked on specifically, which was. Uh, universal Service Fund, which I found to be, you know, before having any any serious conversation, I always felt like I needed a, you know, a stiff martini before before getting on the phone. Yeah. It's going to be really <laughs> difficult. I mean, I, I had a couple of staffers on, on a call, and it it just got to where my brain was ready to explode because, and they were just tip, just seeing the iceberg of explaining to me, you know, aspects of Universal Service Fund. So. Right. Where where did you want to go with that, and where did you guys end up once you got finished with that particular piece of reform? And uh, I'd be happy to do that, and hopefully in a way that you know a, a nice scotch might be good, but I uh, hopefully won't yeah, require you know multiple martinis. Um, it, let's see. I, before I do that, actually, Craig, I do want to sure, just sure. Uh, touch back on your 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 previous point. I just want to say one other thing, which is about this technology transition or technological transition, as the FCC is calling it. Um, you know, it's not just the FCC, and one of the things that localities have is they have a lot more, um, if you will, leverage and influence in their local uh, in their local states, uh, and. And um, I do think it's also this, – this battle is not just in Washington. It's also at every state house. And that's definitely an area where people can uh, utilize the fact that they're much closer to their state, uh, um, you know, um, uh, their state house or their electeds at the state level to to really uh, help educate people. Because what I often find is people just don't understand what's at stake. And when they understand that this is about everybody having access to some kind of communications and about businesses having access to competition – they think about it differently. So I, I, I think that I just urge people to utilize their local contacts as well. To go back to your, your point about the uh, the Universal Service Fund. Um, so I, the Universal Service Fund was, as I said, uh, established in 1996. It actually goes back further than that, but uh, as an explicit mechanism really started in 96. 
Um, and it has uh, four different programs underneath it as well as a uh, contribution mechanism. The four different programs on it, under it by far – so the, the program is over $8 billion by now uh, a year. That's a lot of money even in Washington. And uh, it has four different markets, if you will, that it targets or market failures, if you will, that it targets. Um, the biggest one over half the funding is what is now known as the Connect America Fund or uh, formerly known as High Cost. And that's essentially ensuring that consumers have service in uh, areas that are uh, rural areas, areas that are expensive and hard to reach. The second area is uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, if you will. It's a low-income program. Uh, it's known as the Lifeline Program. It's done in partnership with states. And it provides a discount off of phone service for um, people who qualify under the rules as low income. This, the third program is uh, um, actually the, the second biggest one. It's over two and a quarter billion dollars a year. And it provides, it, it, it was established again in, in the 96 Act. Uh, people know it affectionately as the E-rate program, um, but more formally it's the Schools and Libraries Fund. And it subsidizes telecom and internet connectivity for schools and libraries. So um, not just it, it, a lot of Internet, but also phones and, and uh, cell phones. Um, and then the fourth and the smallest program, which the FCC just passed an order changing the rules for, is uh, the healthcare, rural health care fund. So that's, that's about um, subsidizing um, the cost of connectivity for health care providers uh, wanting to do either telemedicine or, uh, you know, electronic records, all, all the things that health care providers want to use uh, broadband for these days. Now, to, to your question of, so why did I spend so much time in Washington uh, when I would have rather been home in front of a fire drinking a scotch? <laughs> Um, you know, worrying about universal service, right? Um, the reason is that the fund was really very much oriented towards the telephone world. And to some extent, that's an artifact of the statute. To some extent, it's an artifact of history. Um, but we really knew going in that we really wanted to make all these programs, to the extent we could, consistent with the law, uh, more explicitly oriented towards making sure everyone in the country had um, affordable internet access um, and each of those programs to try to shift the balance just a little bit <laughs> uh, so that it would uh, for the future be the compass would point towards internet access rather than just telephone service and um, and uh, that was what we set out to do and that was the whole goal of the Connect America Fund reform and with the Lifeline program, um, the Lifeline still, as you know, it provides an enormous benefit to consumers uh, who would otherwise be cut off um, by uh, making it affordable for them to have a phone. Uh, and the FCC just announced this fall uh, funding of 14 pilot programs to test uh, how different ways of using uh, Lifeline funding towards uh, broadband access, whether that means uh, subsidizing bundles or subsidizing, um, uh, you know, uh, data service on top of uh, on top of um, uh, smartphone service and so on. Uh, so they have 14 pilot programs now uh, that just will get going momentarily. I'm sure. Um, I'm very, you know, as a as a local booster, I get to brag that two of them are actually in Massachusetts. So that's very exciting for us. Well, well, well. okay. <laughs> I had nothing to do I'm with that. I had nothing to do with that. The reason, 
The reason Massachusetts got two is entirely due to the credit of a woman named Deb Soja who uh, runs Technology Goes Home, which is our uh, broadband adoption uh, um, um, portion of the city, if you will, the city of Boston. And she just Excellent. does a fantastic job with a training program for uh, uh, kids in school to take broadband home and not learn to use computer. You know, digital. It's a digital, digital literacy program, very, very effective. Uh-huh. So. Gotcha. Okay. Coolness. Coolness. So um, let, let's let me talk about. Well, we were we were talking about what you guys had intended in terms of the USS reform, and so how close to what you intended to do did you get done before you uh, before we called it a new program? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, the short the short version, Craig, is that you know, and this goes this goes back to uh, to um, to Chuck's point earlier, you know, of how long things can take when you really think that they shouldn't take so long, right? You know, um, what was tied up in the whole USF reform was the fact that um, in addition to the explicit subsidies that carriers got to serve rural areas, there was a whole set of implicit subsidies, and by implicit, I mean these were payments that carriers made to each other. To, uh, to terminate calls or to originate calls, uh, you may have heard the word intercarrier compensation or ICC, but it's it's, it's definitely a you know a, a telecom wonk's um, you know um, dream because it's just incredibly complicated and arcane. But uh, but the bottom line is those explicit subsidies have uh, those implicit subsidies have been a part of universal service for years, and so reforming those was very hard because it basically meant winding down a revenue stream that companies were dependent on. So what we tried to do was establish an orderly wind down of that so that we could uh, make and and to you know. It, it, on the other side, to bring uh, replacement funding into the universal service fund. So, and that that we got done. Uh, you know, uh, as I said, I think we succeeded in the regulators' uh, you know goal, which is to make everybody a little bit equally unhappy. Um, uh, it's, uh-huh. And it's interesting as a, as an ex-regulator going around, you know, to different people, they're like, well, I, you know, I liked everything you did, except you know that thing. It's like, okay, well, I did. You know, somebody said to me when I first went to Massachusetts as a regulator, they said, if you want people to like you get a dog. <laughs> you, know? uh, yes. you don't go into it to be like that. So that's not the point. But we, I think we did we did accomplish that. And the main thing I would say is that that particular reform had been attempted two or three times before, um, and it had been in process. I think since 2001. Um, wow. So 10, 11 years, three, two or three previous attempts at getting it done, and they had all fallen apart. So just, you know, even, so many people came up to me after we voted that and basically said, uh, you know, you got it done. I know it won't be perfect. I know there's things I'm not going to like, but getting it done was just a huge accomplishment. And, you know, so so for that, I'm pleased. Did it do everything that would have been, you know, when I was an academic and I used to write papers about what the perfect policy would be? Uh, no. But could it ever have done that? No. <laughs> right, <laughs> because right, there's right. political realities and, you know, that's just the way the world is. But the main thing is if you want to get something done, you have to compromise. Even even our congressmen have seemed to have figured that out now. Um, and so, uh, Wait, you know, is it is is it? You're right. I mean, is it perfect? No. But is it? Did it get something done? Did it move the ball forward? Yes. And for that, I was right. pleased. And someone in you know getting ready to engage in the uh, the the battle, the uphill slip, as it were, should they re, re, should they come to grips with the uh, this will not be perfect and somebody's going to be unhappy before they get going, or you know, or else risk being severely disappointed and jaded to life when they do finally get out of the process. I think you have to you have to kind of um, 
It's it's an interesting uh, psychological trick because I think people have to go into these proceedings recognizing that they're only going to get some of what they want, but feeling that they've got a victory if they get any of what they want. At the same time, in the advocacy, it's important not to concede too much. And um, so in the advocacy, you know, you want to be single-minded about what it is that you want. Um, and, uh, and um, uh, you know, I think uh, it just it's, it's important not to harp too much on things that you, are just impossible. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it's, it's good to lay a stake in the ground for uh, where you want to be. Uh, it's good to be that contrasting voice. Uh, it's good to have somebody out there saying something different from what the usual suspects are going to say. Uh, okay. That's actually really important. Uh, I understand what you were getting at earlier, Craig, of the feeling of sort of like futility and so forth, but the reality is what we don't want is for that to become a self-fulfilling prophecy of nobody else speaks and therefore there's only one voice talking and so that's the voice that gets listened to. Right. In this particular proceeding in the technological transition, I'm not too worried about that happening <laughs> because there's so many interests that are affected. Uh, there's going to be a good deal of uh, of speaking up, um, you know. And I, I I think one of the other useful advocacy strategies for uh, smaller participants in the in the um, in these proceedings is to look through uh, who's filing comments and what they're saying and to figure out who is somebody you might have common ground with because alliances are really, really important. Um, it's, it just makes the policymaker's job so much easier if there's, you know, if there's uh, five or six consolidated points of view as opposed to 350 slightly different points of view. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, so to the extent that communities find themselves, you know, having a coherent, a point of view that a lot, you know, that for example, some of the, the, the public interest groups like public knowledge or, uh, you know, any of the other groups like that, I, to the extent you find that your views are consistent with theirs, you may want to go in with them on the comments as opposed to writing your own. Right, and I, there is, I would imagine, undoubtedly, some level of, uh, you know. Uh, strength in numbers, and, and which you know you talked about, it, or, or you know you have ten people saying the same thing. It's like a hundred times more better than one, not just ten. So that, that's right, right. That. And- Right. The other state commissions know how to do this. And so to the right. extent you want to make established contact with your state commission or I know, uh, Craig, you're in California, you, uh, turn the, uh, consumer advocate. Some states have, Massachusetts doesn't, or they do it through the attorney general's office, but, uh, some states have a public advocate, um, an office of the public advocate or office of ratepayer advocacy sometimes. Um, and those, those, uh, offices, uh, NASUCA tends to represent them and NASUCA will also often file comments. So there are a number of um, of groups that know this process and uh, you know have a, a, a consumer uh, public interest point of view, uh, and uh, those would be good uh, groups to seek out and see if your positions are consistent with theirs. You know, it makes sense if your position is close to but not exactly the same as somebody else's. It probably makes sense to bend your position and join in with them. Then it makes sense to hold out on your own and, and go in as a as your own player. Do you know what I mean? That that's what I mean by right, compromise. Right. Right. And uh, you know that make, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, ultimately, uh, it comes down to this is a political game, and we can't That's ignore right. that. It's just it is what it is. So you, you have to be ripped for a certain amount of of give and take. But uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times comes uh, from folks who feel like you know it's it's not just the politics. It's often the the perception of of money and and who has the ability to. You know, drop by the FCC office with a bunch of cupcakes, and and so you know, if you're living in, 
Montana or some such place, you know, you, you sort of just feel like you don't have that level of of uh, presence. You know, presence might be a good word for this. And yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting. That, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, and, and one of those, um, you know, what I consider a consistent public advocacy position or gripe or whatever with uh, with FCC policy and policy making is the issue of competition. I mean, if, if there is one thing that, that I can, you know, watch my Twitter feed spike behind, it's this whole issue of, you know, is there really being enough done to facilitate competition, you know, because, I mean, I'm in the middle of, a, I've done several projects, actually, in, um, you know, going into communities, helping them develop strategy, and, and even people are about as far removed from being a technology wonk as you can imagine, you know, the average person on the street, understands basic core concept. If there is only one provider providing a service, uh, oftentimes that service, not only will that service not be good, it will cost a lot of money, and customer service will basically suck. And so, and, and, and they kind of realize it. I mean, that's like a universal feeling is that, you know, in a lot of places there isn't um, enough competition, and it's not just rural areas. I mean, I live in Oakland, or I live in Al- Alameda, actually, next to Oakland. You know, I'm looking for another service. i got two options. And I explored both of those options yesterday, and neither one of those were satisfactory. And, um, you know, so it's it's a big city issue as well as it's a small town issue, which is competition. I mean, what what kind of latitude does the FCC have when all is said and done to impact, um, to create policy that has meaningful impact on competition? Right. I mean, competition is all over the FCC's, uh, you know, proceedings in the same way that broadband is, and it cuts across all the bureaus. And uh, it's, uh, you know, the challenge is that, uh, as I mentioned, it's a very legal, legal, uh, legally bound agency, and so precedent, um, precedent matters a lot. Certain decisions were taken in the early 2000s that essentially, or late 1990s, early 2000s, that set up. The regime we have today for competition, which is a faci- largely a facilities-based model, um, and uh, you know, facilities, uh, network facilities are uh, high fixed costs, low, all, all the um, low marginal costs, all those reasons that economists say that you probably won't have ten uh, ten wires running down your street. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we have wireless, we have wired, they're slightly different. Um, and, um, you know, so, so it, those decisions are, they're what we might call, uh, in the academic world, we used to call path dependent. In other words, things that were decided in the past kind of affect where we are today. And it's hard to reverse history. So, uh, as sympathetic as I am, you know, to, 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 uh, to the, to the concerns you're raising, they're very true. Uh, the FCC can't reverse history. On the other hand, the courts do give the FCC latitude when they feel it's important to change their mind. And uh, they have a, a bit of a barrier to overcome. They have to explain why they changed their mind. But they have done that on occasion. And uh, one example I would point to would be uh, a, a, um, a petition that had been filed before I got to the FCC but was decided while I was there. And because, as at Massachusetts, we had actually filed comments at the proceeding, I was recused from working on it. So my chief economist actually handled the proceeding, and it was a, a petition that uh, the Quest had filed to um, for the FCC to forbear. It's one of the powers that the FCC got in 1996 to decide that a, uh, a piece of the statute or of their rules no longer needs to be enforced effectively. 
Uh, and it had to do with declaring that a market was competitive. It had to do with the Phoenix market. Um, and the SEC said, you know, we've decided these kinds of petitions in a certain way in the past, but now this is how we actually think they should be decided. We should use a market power framework. And uh, in that particular case, said, here's the framework, and, and decided in that case the parties had not made their case but invited them to resubmit under the new rules. The uh, um, You know, that, of course, got taken to court. It showed up in the Tenth Circuit, and the court upheld uh, the FCC and said that they had justified their their change of mind essentially. So it it can be done, um, and it has been done uh, that the FCC would uh, would uh, would change its mind on things. But you know, as you said, Craig, it is a political environment. That's the reality. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we do live in a world where people are unequal in their. <laughs> we're supposed to all be equal in our opportunities, but we're not all equal in our uh, you know our endowments, if you will. <laughs> Uh, right, right, and right, that is right, the world right. world we live in, right? You know, so it, it, unfortunately, it's just as true in uh, political advocacy as it is in everything else in life. Uh, the main thing, though, is to uh, what what the process uh, is intended to ensure is that everybody has the opportunities. And to that point, you mentioned, you know, if someone's two thousand miles away from Washington, they're not, you know, they don't have the physical presence. That is true, but that is why I keep emphasizing, you know, um, that uh, calls are fine. You know, uh, you don't have to be there in person. What you do have to do, though, that I, and that I think is much harder for individuals and, and uh, you know, uh, smaller entities, um, is sort of be in the conversation. And that means keeping up with the proceedings and following the comments and all that. And that's where the professional staff of the of the the more well endowed, if you will, that that is a large part of what they do, uh, and so that is uh, you know part of what helps them to be effective advocates is to know what the to be in the conversation, and it's not at all impossible for others to do, but it is an investment of time uh, for people to be paying attention, and I think that's one of the harder parts. Uh, you know, it, it, unfortunately, it's just it's just the way the process works, uh, and it's a necessary part of the way the process works. It's how everybody gets a voice, but it also means that a lot of people are talking, and one has to know what everybody else is saying, and that that takes a lot of of work and resources to do. So that's one again where I say associations. I think that's a big piece of where they can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, besides the associations, are there any other kinds of folks that are out there? Doing things such as you know there's there's a key issue that's coming up, and and uh, are are there anyone anyone's uh, outside of the uh, you know the typical public advocacy groups like public knowledge and so forth that are rallying people to make comments or they're collecting comments and maybe synthesizing that into a, a single statement? Is anyone doing that kind of work? Uh, you mean for for which proceeding or for any particular well, proceeding? Or? No, no, just in general. Like, so for example, right? You know, the, there's this whole the whole technology change thing. You know, can mm-hmm. uh, carry out of universal service requirements? Um, you know, is there someone who can or does or have done in the past something like, you know, getting all of their, you know, as many people from their city or their county. Uh, or their whatever organization to uh, gather information and, and put it together and then present on behalf of them. Sort of like grassroots, uh, you know, feedback gathering or comment gathering to then present a case or present it online or however they decide to actually deliver this. But, you know, it, it seems like there's a need for that. I'm just wondering if anyone's doing something like that. You mean like crowdsourced comments, sort of? Yeah. <laughs> Almost, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm hearing. It. There you go. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Struggling. For this, well, that's, that's 
thing, crowdsourcing comments to be able to say, you know, we got like 50, people, 50 comments from the state of Iowa or from, you know, such and such county in Georgia. Right. It's interesting. Well, first of all, I think there's an opportunity for you, Craig. But second, <laughs> so I haven't seen anybody do it in that particular in that particular proceeding. What what uh, the the one place where I have seen that that uh, strategy um, used was uh, free press in the open internet proceeding. Uh, the open internet is the other word for network neutrality. Um, yep. And this was free press. Like I said, free press. Uh, I mentioned, you know, people are very focused. That was the issue that they really. That was really their main issue, and they sort of, uh, you know, had had become sort of a voice on that on that issue that everybody looked to. Uh, and they had uh, kind of, you know, it, it's in the old days we used to call it write your congressman campaigns, but now they're you know tweet tweet your tweet your thoughts campaigns. Yeah, um, there you go. So uh, <laughs> right. And uh, they they use very effectively. They use uh, social media and um, uh, you know to uh, to get people mobilized and making comments. And it was interesting from the FCC side because you could always tell when there was a campaign like that because the comments instead of there being 300 comments, there would be 300,000 comments. <laughs> However, 299,000 of them would all say the same thing, which was keep the internet open. You know, right, right, So. So uh, it, it's helpful because it's helpful to know that there's 299,000 people out there who actually care about what the FCC does, which is, you know, it is kind of a, a, a wonky agency. So it's it's very gratifying and, and wonderful to know that people are paying attention, um, and I think it's important. Uh, you know, uh, th- so that's a great thing. On the other hand, it, it's not like it helps the FCC figure out exactly how to write the rule. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, Unless so, you did it in such a way that yeah. you actually got diverse comments and you got people – offering suggestions so that maybe half of the, you know, 100,000 people actually, you know, had some some ideas, however loony they may be. But, you know, because I agree that if you got like 100,000 people all saying, you know, do X and it's all the same X, you know, that, that sort of has limited value. But if you could actually somehow get people to engage long enough to actually give a meaningful comment, it sounds like something like that might have value and help balance out the scales and, and that kind of thing. Right. Right. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we're we're all citizens and all of us, you know, have a state commission and also have a state uh, either attorney general's office or rate payer advocate's office. And those folks do have the experts who know how to, you know, write meaningful input. And I do think that having citizen forums where people talk about these issues, I think, is very helpful to them to hear what people are thinking. Uh, and then they can they can help express it as well. So I, I, I think um, – I, I'm not a, you know, um, the, the proceeding is very young. It was just opened, and as I said, this is the first round of comments and so on on the technology transition. And it could be that there's a grassroots group out there that I'm not aware of, and for which I uh, apologize. But uh, uh, if if there is, but uh, it, it's it's it seems like if there is going to be a grassroots group, now is the time to get it going. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So I'm going to have one last, well, two questions actually. One short. Uh, are you on Twitter? Am I myself on Twitter? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because someone was asking if you had a home page or a Twitter ID. Oh, can I, you know, I, you know, what you're doing these days, Lord. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> what am I doing? Right. But. <laughs> Um, I, I um, you know, it's cold here in New England. I'm sitting by the fire drinking my scotch. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I am, uh, I am actually uh, calling you from the good offices of, of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where I am 
uh, serving as an interim executive director for a new wireless research center here called the Wireless at MIT, which is uh, really uh, putting together some really, really cool technology for uh, how to make wireless data work better, basically. Um, and um, I'm doing that with a piece of my time, and then the other piece I'm working with a consulting firm called Communications Media Advisors, and I'm uh, I'm uh, consulting to selected clients on uh, a whole variety of regulatory issues, including, for example, universal service. Interesting. Um, and so if people wanted to get in touch with you, which of these are the better avenues? Should they look up? Uh, I would go on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, uh, I would yes, have them ping, ping me there. Yeah, okay. ping me there. Not a problem. I mean, that's how you and I got connected, actually. Um, yeah, well, and uh, Chuck, Chuck, I know, is also on LinkedIn. I read his, his feeds regularly. So. Excellent. Cool. So last question today, and we'll let you go. So this has actually gone a little bit long, but I feel like the information has been worth it, and so we'll, we'll, our, our listeners will probably be very grateful. Um, vouchers. There have been a number of uh, ideas that propose something like that, in essence the deal being that instead of giving money to um, carriers and providers because some or as an option, not necessarily replacing per se, but another option, uh, instead of giving money to providers, because some providers have a really bad track record of taking government money and not delivering the promised services. Well, they names this show, but, um, but, that, but that is an issue. And, and someone said, well, why not have uh, some sort of program in which, like, for example, if it's going to be $750 per unserved home, is there going to be a subsidy amount or a number in the calculation of how much you provide a provider or give to a provider, why not um, hmm. why not uh, why not aggregate the, the, uh, yeah, the aggregate why not? amount mm-hmm. you know, based on eligible recipients, you know, like the lifeline, I wrote a whole piece on this for, for the lifetime reform effort, and uh, and that was the thing that actually got me started of when I before I had this conversation with the chairman on Monday with someone on Facebook saying, well, when you see the chairman, ask him about um, you know a voucher program, and 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 let that and so that then the community could tell a, you know a, a slew of providers, you know, this is how much money we have in the aggregate, and this is what we want as a community, and. We will open it up to whoever can give us the best option within the budget that we have, and enforce competition from below versus trying to enforce it from the top down. Right, and vouchers was an idea that we talked about extensively when in developing the the proposal. And you know, to to a large extent, the Lifeline program is a voucher program. The healthcare program is a voucher program. The E-rate program is a voucher program in the sense that. Um, each of them essentially, um, well, and actually let me separate that. Lifeline's a little bit different from the other two. Uh, let's talk about healthcare and E-rate in the sense in which those are vouchers. Essentially, uh, the, take a school, they go out and they say, you know what, I, what I need is 10 gig, you know, 10 megabit of Ethernet service. 
And so they go out and they put out an RFP and ask for a solicitation and they ask for 10 megabit Ethernet service. They're then given, uh, you know, a series of bids. Hopefully they get multiple bids and they select uh, the one that is the most cost effective for them. That's what they're required to do. And then E-Rate gives them a discount off of, off of the price. Um, so in that sense, it's a portable voucher. The, the, the school can use it for whoever is the best, uh, the best offer for them. Uh, the reason rural healthcare and, and, um, E-Rate work that way is that they um, are a different part of Section 254 of the Communications Act, which governs universal service. Uh, and it was added more recently than the other stuff, and it uh, and it does not require the uh, recipient of the funds to be an eligible telecommunications carrier, so it can be funded in that sort of voucher way. Lifeline in a similar vein, uh, Lifeline does, Lifeline and the high cost program or the Connect America fund, they do require the funds to go flow to an eligible telecommunications carrier. Again, it's a statutory restriction. So, uh, for those programs, um, and now Lifeline essentially is a voucher program in the sense that a customer can buy Lifeline service from whoever they choose. If they have five different wireless carriers offering Lifeline service, they can pick which one they want and they'll get the Lifeline discount from that carrier. Uh, of course, they're not allowed to get it from multiple carriers at once, and that's one of the problems in the program that uh, that the set of reforms we passed about a year and a half ago, I guess, um, uh, were, were sent to, uh, to to fix that. Uh, but uh, in any case, they they are um, uh, you know they can it's a portable voucher in that sense. However, the funds flow through the carrier, and that's a, a, a artifact of the statute. So. I would love to do what uh, what uh, you know. I would have loved to do what uh, what the you know the suggestion of a sort of a community-based block grant, if you will. Uh, and when I was in NARIC, we talked about having BTOP uh, be a sort of a, a state-based block grants. Um, but that isn't how it was done. <laughs> and uh, in in fact, BTOP is a little bit closer to uh, to how uh, what what you're describing in the sense that it was a grant to a community, which then could put out an RFP for working with providers or however they chose to do it. Um, unfortunately, that just isn't the way you know um, Chapter 47 of our national laws are, are written. Um, but you know, I, one other thing I would just throw out there, and this is very, very, very long term and pie in the sky, but um, you know, it wouldn't really surprise me if a piece of the technological transition, uh, you know, record that develops is one that says, you know what, some things about our statute really no longer make sense. It's time to take a look now. We've all watched uh, just the fiscal cliff drama. Imagine trying to get telecom reform done. But stranger things have happened. <laughs> right? So uh, at some point in the next 50 years, I'll go out on a limb. <laughs> Some point in the next 50 years, the telecom law will get rewritten, and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, it will again be important for communities to have a voice in that. And having ideas like uh, the community grant or or voucher program out there in the record are helpful to the discussion. Even you know, as long as people recognize that perhaps they couldn't necessarily be done under today's statute, but that they would be good ideas. You know, for reasons X, Y, and Z that the advocates would need to articulate why they're better than the way we do it today, um, and uh, get them into the discussion. I think it's a great idea. Cool. Well, let's see what we can do. Uh, you know, this has all been extremely helpful. And um, you know, when you talk about Lifeline being a voucher program, I was thinking, well, from my perspective, it's more powerful if. You know, if you have a thousand people in a community that are eligible for Lifeline, that it's more powerful to put the the thousand you know payments together 
has a $10,000 lump sum to go out and negotiate versus each person on their own. Because, you know, one person goes to AT&T and says, well, you know, you guys and Verizon, you know, there's not much, this is not what I want. I mean, well, who's going to listen? But if you've got 1,000 people or someone speaking for those 1,000 people and that's the amount of money that they're talking about, I think they have a better leverage. And I'm not sure with these 14 pilot projects if the, one of those pilots, you know, addresses aggregating the, the you know, the voucher stuff or not. I have to go and look at those actually before too long. Well, um, yeah, well, I mean, effectively, the vouchers are aggregated because essentially, uh, so so Lifeline has attracted a tremendous number of providers. Actually, the problem with Lifeline is perhaps arguably too many, not too few. Uh, you know, because basically every wireless reseller in the country has uh, has figured out that they can uh, attract a whole new set of customers. Uh, you know, that they couldn't attract otherwise because they get effectively ten dollars a month from the FCC to serve those customers. Uh, so Lifeline. The Lifeline uh, discount has been extremely popular. What the pilots are intended to test, uh, but, but like I said, the money flows through the carrier to the customer. Um, the, uh, the, what those pilots are intended to test is different ways of structuring the broadband subsidy. So, for example, uh, I'm familiar with a couple of the, uh, the, the pilots in Massachusetts. I believe One is TrackPhone. I believe the other is through Sprint. Uh, I'm not certain about the second one. And they, uh, for example, will test different things like, um, well, what if you do a discount of this amount of money off uh, off the price per month? Or what if you do the discount for three months and then discontinue it? What happens? Or, uh, you know, what if you include training, digital literacy training, as part of the of the uh, of the it, it, not just the discount, but also include training as a piece of the offering. Uh, and then uh, the interesting thing about those pilots is they they all have to be heavily instrumented. And one of the things we did at the FCC was um, to um, to offer the services of the Universal Service Administrator, which is known as USAC, uh, to help uh, collect and, and uh, analyze the data that comes in. So there was a format specified for this is the data that we need to know about each of the pilot, or rather the FCC needs to know about each of these pilot projects. How many people did you serve? How long was the discount for? Uh, you know, what kind of training do they have? And then at the end of the program, how many people became adopters who were not adopters beforehand? Um, and so uh, there there will be some really good data coming out of that to basically say what's the most efficient way to get uh, broadband adoption to increase. Uh, so that that was the goal of that of that pilot program because uh, what tends to happen with these programs is once you put in place a particular subsidy mechanism, as we saw with the high cost fund, which took 10 years to reform, it can take a really really long time to change the way that you give the money away. So I think it's a very good use of the public funds when you're doing something new with the money, rather than to lock it in right away and then later discover that it's a disaster. Um, to actually do some experimentation and sort of see what 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 are you really getting bang for the buck for. And I, I will also say, you know, with it, with a certain amount of regulatory hubris. Uh, there's always unintended consequences of things that you do. You know, nobody foresaw that, you know, when Lifeline was adopted back in 1984, that there would be, um, you know, providers who on $10 a month could 
could give away a cell phone and give away service and that there would be people competing for that and there there would be people out there committing fraud and uh, you know uh giving these things to people who already had lifeline service from somebody else that that just wasn't foreseen 25 years ago or actually you know um so it, it, rules can get old and stale and be in dire need of overhaul um so even the best pilot program in the world will only you know design a program that lasts for so long so right. a piece of what uh, regulators really have to do also is just to recognize and, you know this industry changes so fast so uh, a piece of what regulators really have to do is just to keep uh keep their programs fresh and that that's hard to do too but but again it's one where people out there in the real world can sort of give the on the ground view of what is really happening um i think it's that's very fun. important i you know, I, there's one other thing we haven't really talked about that's very easy for people to do, and it does come back to write your congressman. Uh, one of the things that I received both at, at the Mass Commission and in, uh, in, in Washington were letters that people, uh, heartfelt letters often from people, uh, you know, usually the gist of them was, I don't have broadband and I would like it, um, that people wrote to their congressman and the congressman would then forward to the FCC and essentially say, uh, what are you doing about this? <laughs> Um, and I, uh, you know, and we would respond, but uh, I thought those letters were helpful aside from just, you know, uh, sort of uh, implied, you know, this is an important, uh, important issue. They actually told people's individual stories. People would write their individual stories of what they had done to try to get broadband or what kinds of providers were or were not available in their area and what they were offering. You know, that's something when you sit in Washington, you just, you don't, you don't know. Uh, and it's really, really, really helpful uh, for people to write in and explain their situations and just make sure that their voices are heard because it's often, you know, in a steady diet of industry lobbyists, those are not the stories that people hear. Um, so right. I think it's, it's, it's valuable even if people don't feel like they have the time to read the dockets or, you know, be in the conversation or all that, just to tell their own stories and what the problems are that they're experiencing from their own point of view and what, what has happened when they've tried, for example, to get service from a company and it hasn't worked or whatever. Just to tell those stories I think is extremely valuable. And, um, you know, uh, one way in which that is valuable aside from proceedings is also just uh you know uh, when people are giving speeches they always want a human face to these to these uh these things and you never know your story it would be anonymized but it might get told even more broadly than you ever expected <laughs> so. mm-hmm. okay well yeah. together, this has been extremely helpful i mean it has been a very i think productive time uh i think that uh, even if people have to listen to the show in you know 50 minute segments and grab a scotch, that they, that they will know a lot more because it is complex. I think that, you know, you've done a lot in this uh, short time of the show to make some of these these complexities a little easier to comprehend. Now, clearly the hard work, obviously, is getting off of people, you know, butts to go out and, and write the letters and do the process, you know, because it will take months and maybe years for any of these initiatives to go from idea to final rules and all, all the rest of it. But, you know, I think it's, you know the first step is understanding really what's, what's going on, and to not to lose that sense or that feeling that you know we're up against Goliath and we have no hope, and so why do we even bother? And I think if anybody can get past that, then you know you and I have still done a good job. I mean, we've done, we've provided a good service because we've enabled people to you know, grasp the fact that you know it, it does help to get involved and to get engaged. So. Right. Right. And for your, your time. Yeah, you're, 
You're very welcome. I just end by saying, you know, if only one voice is speaking, only one voice will be heard, and so we need everybody's voice to be heard. So uh, the only way we can do that is if we all speak. So uh, I, I uh, thank you for the time, Craig, and I look forward to the I look forward to the crowdsourced FCC comments coming soon to a to a Craig Settle site near you. <laughs> all right, you take care, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, no worries, and, and thank you to our audience for being here uh, again. Happy New Year. Uh, I'm looking for a lot of, of really great shows this year as we go into new directions, but always coming back to the issue of, you know, how do we get broadband out to the places where it needs to be and how do we continually improve that broadband once it's there. So uh, it's a journey. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this journey. Uh, we will be on the show, let's see, we'll be on Friday talking about the report that was done recently that kind of that ranks different states and the state of their broadband uh, within those states. So you probably want to check out the show for Friday. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon.